want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy. We've been working our way through this book. We are in the home stretch. Uh, at the end of chapter 5, we've got one more chapter to go. And if there's a unifying theme to this book, I think you can find it in chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, where Paul says, I, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you. I'm writing this whole book to you so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. In other words, when the people of God live according to the word of God, they hold the truth of God high for a watching world to see. When the people of God, according to the word of God, they hold the truth of God high for a watching world to see. And so Paul addresses a number of different issues about how the church should function and operate. He talks about men and women and, and prayer and the word of God in the, in the place of the church. And he talks about how Timothy, as a young pastor, needed to conduct himself in and among the congregation and the priorities that he should have as a minister. And we spent the past two weeks talking about one practical ministry that the church ran to widows, caring for those who could not care for themselves, and the passion that Paul had that the church would have integrity and a good reputation in how they conducted their ministry. And I believe that as we follow the instructions of this book, our church will have the same integrity and the same ability to be that pillar and buttress of the truth. So this week, Paul turns and begins talking again about elders and how the church as a whole should relate to elders. So he's asked this question, how does the church relate to men and women and to widows who are in need, and then as he concludes this sort of general section of applications from the first half of the book, he turns again and begins to talk about elders and how the church should provide for them and how the church should hold them accountable, and finally, what to do as the church seeks to add to their number. And so I've got three points for you this morning from this passage. And the first one's a little bit goofy, but maybe it'll be memorable. Number one, what do you do with an elder? Well, number one, you let the ox eat some grain. You let the ox eat some grain. I heard an amen there. <laughs> number two, you don't ignore sin. You don't ignore sin. And number three, you don't add to their number too quickly. Number three, you don't add to your number too quickly. I will take a little bit of time on each of those. I'm not done. Um, just to give you a sense of what we're doing and where we're going. So as we want to hold the truth of God high as the people of God, the first thing that Paul instructs is found in verses 17 and 18 as it relates to the whole church instruction for elders. So verse 17, we're going to read these two verses together, and I'll say a word about each of them. So let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. There are a couple things that I want to say in particular about this verse because so much around the topic of elders or pastors is controversial. And I want to just in a moment answer a couple of questions that should come out of these verses here. First of all, one of the things that might be controversial is that little word in the ESV translated rule, when it says, let the elders who rule well. Well, good grief. There, there are a lot of churches that are not comfortable with authority within the church. And as Americans, we're not very comfortable with authority. So why is Paul using a word that is laden with authority when it pertains to the leadership of the church? And there are a couple things that I'd like to, like to point out. Uh, first is that this is not the only place where this happens. Uh, there's a, a verse right at the end of Hebrews where the writer of Hebrews says, Church, obey your leaders and submit to them, 
for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And I mentioned that verse in particular because it does two things. Number one, it supports the idea that the church is to have godly men who lead with authority. So part one, there is a type of authority that comes with pastoral ministry. But part two, the purpose of that authority is to watch for the souls of the people. And you say, man, isn't that Jesus' job? Yes, it is. It is. And one of the ways that Jesus watches over our souls is he appoints leadership within the church so that we can lovingly guide each other back to the word again and again. I think one of the most important letters in this verse is the letter S at the end of elders. Because what that does is it allows a pastor to have accountability from someone else to also come in and say, Pastor, we want to make sure that you are being held accountable to the word. And in a moment, we're going to see how the church is to hold those who do have a type of authority accountable according to the word. But the point of this accountability is to guard our our flock so that we don't go astray, so that we don't lose hope, so that we don't fall into sin and cut ourselves off from Christ. The writer of Hebrews says, the church has a responsibility to submit to the leadership that God has established within the church. And Paul is saying what I believe is a very similar thing when he assumes that the elders are exercising authority or are ruling over the church. Um, I wanted to make sure I did due diligence and wasn't just leaning too heavily on an English translation that wasn't accurate. So the word there is actually proistos, Proistemi is the verb, and it means to exercise a position of leadership, to rule, to direct, to be at the head of, or to have an interest in, or with an emotional connection to show concern for, to care for, or to give aid. The 1984 NIV translates this verse, those who direct the affairs of the church. So there is a leadership and a visionary aspect of those who serve as elders or pastors that they are responsible to help shape what the ministries of the church look like, but primarily as it relates to the word of God. So I'm going to spend a moment or two describing, yes, I do believe this verse does mean that there is a type of gentle authority that pastors are to exercise and that the church is to, in a godly way, submit to. There are two important caveats to that. The first is you never submit to a pastor who is in sin, period. You never submit to a pastor who is in sin. And I'll talk more about that in my next point, don't ignore sin, in verses 19 through 21. The other is that authority is a humble, servant-like authority. So I, I had Heather read from 1 Peter in chapter 5 when Peter describes the elders who are among the church that Peter is writing to. He says that they are to shepherd the flock of God that is among them, exercising oversight. Now, an overseer does have a type of authority within the church. They are to do that not under compulsion, not because they have to, not because no one else is willing, but they are to do that willingly as God would have them, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in their charge, but by being examples to the flock. So as Jesus is an example as a humble servant, and he says, those who are leaders among you must function as servants, we follow that example, and how do we serve? Well, primarily, every elder needs to have the ability to teach, and Paul says here in these verses that there is a special prominence for those who labor in the ministry of the word. He says, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And I want to ask just the question, why does he give such prominence to the word? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. One is it does take work to try to accurately understand the word of God. 
It does take work to try to accurately understand the word of God. Now, I have a passion for helping every believer read the word regularly. You might say, man, I'm not a Bible scholar. That's fine. There are great translations that are easy to understand. One of my favorites is actually the NLT, the New Living Translation. It's smooth, you can read it quickly, and it reads very quickly. And I strongly encourage you, if you've never read all the way through the Bible, you can start in Genesis and go straight through, or you can follow a different type of reading plan. I believe that God has written his word in a way that you can understand what is essential and important. But if that's true, then why do we need people to be devoted to studying it? Well, in addition to the fact that you can understand what is essential and important, there are a lot of things that are difficult to understand. In fact, Peter said in his letter, the second letter that he wrote, he loves Paul, but he says some of what he writes is difficult to understand. And if Peter felt that way, I know I've felt that way. Oftentimes, whether it's a single verse or even a whole story, you can stumble upon something and say, Lord, how does this fit with everything else? What does this mean? And so it is right and good for the church to support people who are able to devote themselves to careful study of original languages, of ancient cultures, who can read very broadly and widely to make sure that we are trying to accurately understand this so that we don't make mistakes as we follow Christ. Paul says that those who labor in the ministry of preaching and teaching are worthy of a type of double honor. Now, I want to pause right here. So I'm in the point that we should let the ox eat some grain, right? That's my first point this morning. And his simple point is you should pay some of your elders, especially those who labor in the ministry of the word. And it would be just horrible of me to say, all right, church, come on. But that's not what I'm here to do. I actually want to say a huge thank you for the way that our church has provided for me and my family. Uh, I believe our church has been very generous, and I am very conscious of the privilege that I have to be able to devote myself to studying this word. I can say five years in, I understand maybe just a little bit more than I did earlier because of the time I've been able to devote to the word. And so I am not preaching this text to say that the church owes us anything, but instead to say, I believe the church has been very faithful here, and we are very blessed to be supported by you as a church. The question becomes, is he actually talking about monetary compensation? And you have to read the rest of the passage to make sense of that. He quotes two scripture references. One is where I took the the this point from where he says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And the other is a direct quote from Jesus when he says, the laborer deserves his wages. So when he's talking about rulers, when he's talking about elders who rule well being worthy of double honor, that double honor is the wage that Jesus is talking about there. And the quote that he says, uh, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain is from the Old Testament. And I would actually ask you to pay attention to how Paul is using the Old Testament here. He is holding Moses up as an example for how the church today should conduct itself. Paul is not saying we've moved beyond the Old Testament. Instead, he sees a verse and says, God literally has a heart for oxen who are laboring. You should make sure that the animals who serve you get to eat. Don't prevent them from eating while they're laboring. And so Paul is saying, if God's heart is to provide for an animal, it also makes sense that he wants to provide for the people who are laboring and serving within the church. And he says, especially for those who labor in preaching and teaching. If that's true of how he handles the Old Testament, that it is instructive for the heart of God and applicable to the church, it's also interesting that the next reason he gives for paying your elders is the laborer deserves his wages. And it would be natural to assume that that came from the Old Testament, but it doesn't. If you have a red-letter Bible, those little letters are in red, and he is quoting Jesus directly. So in the same breath, Paul is saying, God taught this to Moses in the Old Testament, And Jesus affirmed it. 
And there was a time when maybe we would say, look, Paul is treating Luke's gospel, where you can find this quotation of Jesus, he's treating that as scripture. It proves that the New Testament is scripture. But in our day, it's more popular to accept the teachings of Jesus and to push away the Old Testament. And so I want to take a second and just hold the Old Testament up high and say, look, Paul is treating the Old Testament as scripture along with the words of Jesus. And they both harmonize together and teach us this principle that God wants to see those who labor in ministry provided for by those who benefit from their ministry. The reason I think it's worth pausing and taking time to point that out, that Paul quotes both from the Old Testament law and from the teaching of Jesus, is so often today, we love to pick and choose some of our favorite verses. And maybe we don't even do it intentionally. But without even trying, we remember the things that we like and we either neglect or miss the things that we don't. And the Bible will not have that. The Bible instead shows a unity so that we should wrestle with the things that are hard and understand how they fit together with the things that give us strong encouragement and hope. And I want to say, as Paul is making a point of application for the church, church, take care of your pastors, church, take care of your elders, he's doing it standing on the firm foundation of the word of God and the teachings of Jesus and showing how they all come together which serves his point that that's especially true for those who labor in the ministry of preaching and teaching. And I think it would be fitting, and I think it would be wise to ask the question, why does he place such a high priority on preaching and teaching? There are many good things that the church does. Why does he believe that this is especially valuable? Well, I believe the reason is it's through the word of God that dead sinners become alive and saved. Paul says in Romans 10 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And then he goes on to say, how can people hear unless the word is preached? So if you want people to come to know the Lord, you have to have people who are faithfully preaching the word so that they can hear, so that they can believe. So reason number one why preaching and teaching is a priority in the church, what sets the church apart from every other philanthropic organization, reason number one is that the word brings life. The word brings life. When people were turning away from Jesus, because some of the things that Jesus said were very hard. You can read about this in John chapter 6. I'm not going to preach from John 6, but in John 6, as Jesus has been teaching some hard things, and John says people began to leave. The giant crowd that he drew was starting to thin. And Jesus looked at his apostles and said, are you guys going to leave too? And Peter looked at him and said, well, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. There's no other place to get the life that Jesus has to offer, except for where the word is preached. So reason number one, the word gives life. That's why we prioritize it with time. That's why we prioritize it with our resources. But not only does the word give life. Okay, you might say, I became a Christian decades ago. Maybe you've been a Christian for 50 plus years. What does the word do for you now? Well, the Bible teaches that the word is preparing you to meet Jesus face to face. You see, one day, every person in here, believer, non-believer, doesn't matter. Every person in here will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are a believer right now, the word of God is getting you ready for that moment. You might say, how is that working? How's that? Well, in the context of this message, this message is saying Church, we need godly qualified leaders to lead the church, especially in the ministry of the word, so that all of us are equipped with Bible knowledge, but not just Bible knowledge, but that Bible knowledge informs our practice on a day-to-day -day basis. One way that's applied is in the ministry to widows that we read about and, and heard about in the, over the past two weeks. But there are countless other ways that this word must be applied. And so the word not only gives life, 
The word prepares you to meet Jesus face to face. See, where do you get that? Well, Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5. Scripture says that Jesus is washing the church with the pure water of the word. He is preparing his bride for himself so that one day when all of God's people see Jesus face to face, there is going to be the largest party in the universe. And it'll be a time of joy. and It'll be a time of blessing. And to be ready for that day, you and I need the word regularly in our lives. The word gives strength and hope. The word warns us of the dangers of sin. The word strengthens the weak. The word helps us anticipate the goodness of Jesus coming. And so we prioritize it by paying some to devote their lives to careful, accurate study so that as best we can, we can understand what God meant when he originally wrote it and how it applies in our lives today. So point one, let the ox eat a little grain, is really intended to say, church, let's hold this word up high. Thank you, as as the pastor who is able to devote most of his time to studying and reading and teaching and praying, I want to say thank you that our church already does this and want to say, let's continue to do it. Let's continue to be devoted to the word. Let's be faithful in learning it. Let's be faithful to be ready. Point number two actually has has to do with the question of how does the word then apply back to the minister? How does the word apply back to the minister? So what do you do with an elder? Well, first, you let the ox eat some grain. You you take care of his earthly needs. Point two, you don't ignore sin. You don't ignore sin. So look at verses 19 through 21 with me. He says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Jesus, Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. This is a heavy thing. And before I talk about how to rebuke an elder, I do want to say a word about, I don't want to skip over Uh, Verse 19, when it says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. What what is he talking about there? That seems like a wide open door for all kinds of abuse. You know, only one person said this, so you just ignore him. Well, no, that's not what he's doing. This is the standard that God laid down in the Old Testament, again, that you could not execute someone unless you had at least two witnesses who agreed on the crime they committed. So that's why when Jesus is on trial, maybe you remember in in all of the Gospels, it describes how the different witnesses that were brought against him could not agree, so they could not move to convict until they said, he said that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, which he had actually said. And if they'd understood what he meant, they would have known that he was about to die and rise again for the sins of the entire world. He was not speaking against the temple of God, but he was describing how God had a different plan than just perpetual sacrifices forever. Instead, he, as the maker of the universe, was about to lay his life down. In the context of that trial, they had to have two witnesses to make sure that justice was not abused, that instead you don't condemn an innocent person. And in this context, I believe it is helpful to recognize in leadership, you will be unjustly criticized. It will happen. Doesn't matter what type of leadership you are in. Leaders must make decisions that will be unpopular with at least a few people. I have had terrible things said about me and my family because of decisions that I have made. And I own that, and I believe they were right. The question is, can you have multiple witnesses pointing to the word of God saying that your pastor is in sin? And if you have one cranky person, I believe it's right to say, okay, 
What evidence do you have for this? And if they don't have evidence, you allow a cranky person to be a cranky person. You don't listen to one person when there's no collaborating evidence for a trumped-up charge. So there is a passion for fairness because elders are in a position of leadership. Sometimes they rebuke sin, and rebuked sinners are often angry, especially when they reject the word. Because that's true of their type of leadership, there is a little bit of protection that says, be careful before you assume your pastor is in sin. Now with that said, there are so many cases of pastoral abuse and of Christian leaders who have committed terrible sins and the church has covered it up and hidden it that no way do I want to abuse that verse to provide protection that God does not intend to offer. So I want to say this very carefully and very clearly. God takes abuse very seriously. He is passionate for justice, but he is passionate for victims of abuse as well. And the church has a responsibility to those who are abused and to those who make accusations to take every accusation seriously. So on the one hand, we want to be careful to not condemn the innocent. We also want to be very careful to not acquit the guilty. And so when he talks about what do you do with an elder who persists in sin? The answer is, because of the nature of their public ministry, you don't deal with it behind closed doors. You have to publicly acknowledge it. And I'll give one example of how that happened recently, and I'm not going to name names. I think many of you will know who I'm talking about. Uh, But we had a case here in Holly where there was a pastor that committed adultery. And I believe his church did the right thing. They called a church meeting and had everyone who'd attended or been part of the church attend, and they publicly condemned their pastor for the sin that he had committed publicly. At that time, he was not repentant and wanted nothing to do with repentance, and so they removed him from ministry and removed him from the church and prayed that the Lord would lead him to repentance. They followed this exact passage confront him publicly. Why? Because if you hide his sin, number one, you are complicit in it, and number two, you will encourage other people to imitate it. So the word says that when you publicly rebuke and you publicly confront sin, look at the end of verse 20, the rest may stand in fear. There is a warning when you see someone else publicly condemned for their sin that you and I also will be held accountable for our sins. So, man, when I hear a brother pastor fell, I am not very likely to say, man, I hate that guy because I am terrified that someday I may fall as well. That kind of condemnation is a warning for me and for every other person in ministry Don't allow sin to be part of your life. So don't excuse or cover up sin. Instead, rebuke it and expose it. Before I move on, I want to say one other thing. One of the most important ways that I believe pastors or elders lead in the church is they lead in repentance. Now, I kind of glossed over part of a verse that I want to ask you to direct your attention to. Notice at the beginning of verse 20, he says, as for those who persist in sin. As for those who persist in sin. In other words, he's not talking about, you know, pastor lost his temper, which I may have done yesterday. That that might have happened. Uh, pastor lost his temper, and so now we need to hold a church meeting and everybody point their fingers at him and say, man, you're a lousy Christian. That's not what he's talking about. The real problem becomes if pastor can't admit that he lost his temper and never repents and again and again commits the same sin, that's when you publicly rebuke him. Instead, if you come to me and say, pastor, man, I think, I think you blew it. I think you messed up in this area and you're right, My first reaction should not be 
overly defensive and denying and explaining and trying to help you understand why I did what I did, my first reaction should be careful consideration. And if you're right, I need to repent and apologize not only to you, but to anybody else who who was hurt. My first responsibility and the responsibility of every pastor is to repent of my sins and to lead the church in that kind of repentance. Guys, we believe that the church is made up of sinners, right? None of us are members because we're good people. We would have zero membership if that were the case. So when a pastor leads the ministry of the word, I don't stand here and say, guys, this is how you live your life. I stand here and hold the grace of Jesus high. And if I preach in such a way that it makes it seem like I don't need the grace of Jesus, I'm not leading. I have to preach this gospel in a way that says, this is for me. I need the forgiveness of Jesus And I want to welcome everyone along the way who's willing to embrace his free gift to know his grace, to experience the forgiveness of sins. And so Paul is saying, yes, don't ignore sin in your elders. But that doesn't mean your elders are going to be perfect. Instead, when you see an elder in sin, the right thing is repentance and restoration. I mentioned a couple weeks ago, kind of in passing, by way of illustration, the example of Peter. Uh, Because Peter has some sin in his life. A couple weeks ago, I mentioned how he denied the Lord, right? Like, can you imagine a worse betrayal? Jesus has literally never done anything wrong to Peter. And he's done a whole lot of really good things. And yet, in the hour when Jesus is on trial... And he's about to go to the cross and die for Peter. That's the moment when Peter says, I never knew him. And yet, Christ loves him and forgives him. And Peter becomes a model of repentance. In fact, when Jesus told Peter that he would betray him, I love the way Jesus says it because he says, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you. When you turn, when you come back from that moment of sin, when you turn from that betrayal, he says, strengthen the brothers, strengthen the church. Because Jesus prayed for Peter, Jesus knew Peter was going to fail. And he also knew that because of the Father and because of his prayer, that after Peter's failure, he would come back. And the way Peter strengthened his brethren is he didn't walk around and say, don't do what I did. I imagine there's a certain level where where he does warn, but even more than that, he lets people know the love of Jesus for failures. He lets people know the depth of the grace of God. Peter can say, brother, sister, I denied Jesus when he was on trial. And Jesus loved me anyway. That's his depth of love for you. And so Peter's leadership, Peter refers to himself as an elder in the passage that we read. Peter's leadership after sin was to point back and say, look, this is the grace of God in my life. Now, we already read the passage earlier in this book that talks about the high standard before someone is qualified to serve as an elder. So that's in no way an excuse that says, you know what, none of us are perfect, it doesn't matter, anybody's qualified. That's not true. There is a high standard and a high calling. And go back and and listen to those messages and hear about the standards of reputation and integrity. The standards of being gentle, being a faithful spouse. All of those things, they matter deeply, but no one is going to be able to be faithful 100% of the time. Everyone who serves in ministry will sin. And so as they sin, their leadership then becomes a leadership of going back to the cross and finding the grace of God and saying, church, 
Let's remember the forgiveness that's available in Christ. There are sins that do completely disqualify people from serving as elders. I believe for life. I think it is possible to sin in such a public way and to hurt so many people that you cannot serve in public ministry. You can absolutely be a member of the church. You can absolutely celebrate the grace of God. This is necessary when someone persists in sin and does not repent so that the rest of the church stands in fear. So, number one, what do you do with an elder? Well, you let the ox eat a little grain. Number two, you don't ignore sin in their life. And then number three, you don't add to their number too quickly. You don't add to their number too quickly. Now, I mentioned the most important letter, I think, in this passage is the letter S. Let elders who rule well. Uh, This is saying... Be cautious before you form a big group. And I want to take a moment and talk a little bit about what that means and why. So he he says, verse 22, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and for your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also, good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Now, I'll take apart those verses, but I want to say the single theme that unifies everything I just read is, how do you bring someone into pastoral leadership? How do you appoint someone as a pastor? You say, man, where are you getting that? That doesn't even look like a verse that is appointing someone to to pastoral leadership. Well, it's in the phrase, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. Don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. I I was joking with somebody earlier this week. You know, you could maybe think that this is an instruction for your ushers. Don't, Don't be like bouncers and kick people out of the service too fast. He's not talking about laying on hands like that. He's instead talking about the type of prayer where you physically put hands on the person you're praying for. And you see this in a couple places, and the reason I am totally persuaded that this is talking about commissioning someone for service is Paul twice, once in 1 Timothy, once in 2 Timothy, refers to how Timothy had people lay hands on him and commission him for ministry. So you can see that back in chapter 4 when he tells him to, to remember how he received gifts by the laying on of hands, and he is intending to encourage him that those gifts are sufficient for his ministry. And you see it in the book of Acts, as Paul and Barnabas are commissioned to go out for a missionary journey. It says the Holy Spirit led the church to set them apart, and the whole church gathered around them, and people physically put their hands on him. And you say, man, the church is weird. Why do, why do they do things like that? And yeah, maybe that is a little bit weird, but I want to ask you to think about it for just a minute. Partly, the example of Scripture teaches us to. So even before we totally understand it, we can just follow the example of Scripture. The first time that we see it is when Moses is about to die, and before Moses dies, he prays for the people. Moses, I think, is one of the greatest prayer warriors in all of the Bible. He faithfully prays for really frustrating people and demonstrates a love for them, even as they have failed him and frustrated him for 40-plus years in the wilderness. He prays that God would give the people someone to lead them after he's gone. And God answers that prayer in the person of Joshua. And Moses puts his hands physically on Joshua and prays for him, prays that he would be able to lead the people faithfully, that God would bless them with victory as he leads them into the promised land, that they would be protected from sin, and that they would be blessed. And he physically placed hands on him as he prayed. Now, so even if we don't understand why, we at least have a biblical example to follow and say, man, I'm not sure why I'm supposed to do this, but here we go, we're going to do it. That's not a bad place to start. But I do think the scripture actually helps us understand even more a little bit why. And before we go there, I want to pause for just a moment and say, how many of you have been encouraged when someone lovingly came alongside you and just placed their hand on your hand? 
I do this when I make hospital visits. I try to use judgment and discernment to say, is this, is this going to be something that they're like, man, get away from me? Or is this going to be something where they are super discouraged and longing for affection? And I can tell you, more often than not, I usually, right before I press, hey, man, I, I want to pray for you. And I'll just gently lay my hand on top of their hand. Um, sometimes I'll even do it, you know, if the person uh, is... Uh, heavily medicated, and I think of somebody like Daryl Burgett, who was in so much pain, they gave him a ton of morphine, and just add a little bit of physical affection that says, hey, we are brothers in the Lord, or, or hey, I'm your brother in the Lord. I'm going to love you by placing my hand on your hand, just to say that I'm with you in this. And we understand the value of a physical touch in like a firm handshake, right? Okay, so what does a firm handshake communicate? Well, to me, a firm handshake communicates, I respect you. I, I am willing to give you my friendship, and I will be loyal to you. There, there can be a lot that's said with just a firm handshake. And, and what does a high five say? Well, well, a high five is a celebration of victory. We're in this moment together, and I'm happy for you. That was awesome. Well, if we appreciate physical touch in those places and in those ways, I think what the Bible is pointing us to is in prayer, there is something communicated by physical touch that says, I am with you. Now, me being with you is not super special. I'm just a guy, right? There's nothing super special about me. This goes both ways. You know, I hope if you visit me in the hospital someday, maybe you'll return the favor. But physically placing your hand on someone outside of this context can say, man, I am sorry for your pain. I'm sorry for all that you're experiencing. I want you to know that I love you as a brother in Christ. I want you to know that I'm grieving with you. And I want you to know that as I pray, I'm asking that the Lord would be with you and comfort you spiritually. I'm asking that the Lord would raise you up physically, that you would not continue in weakness. So if that's what a hand on a hand says in the context of a hospital visit, now what might it say in the context of commissioning someone for ministry? Now that's a really different context, but you see it over and over again. You see it with Joshua, you see it with Paul and Barnabas in the book of Acts before they go out on the missionary journey, and you see it with Timothy, who is appointed for ministry. And Paul reminds him of that moment at least twice in writing. I can only imagine the, the number of conversations where Paul would say, hey man, do you, remember, do you remember that time when the whole church prayed for you and, and we put our hands on you and the whole church recognized that you were called for ministry and, and we prayed that the Lord would bless you and make you strong and protect you from sin and that the Lord would move in your life to be a blessing to everyone in our church and wherever you go in ministry, that the word would have power in your preaching. As you read about the life of Timothy, it seems like he had the gift of evangelism and he certainly had the gift of preaching. He had gifts of leadership and administration in the church. And that moment when they placed their hands on him was a moment of saying, Brother, we believe the Lord is at work in your heart. We love you and we are praying for you and we want to hold you up in prayer and we want to ask for the blessing of the Holy Spirit in a special, in a particular way. And the laying on of hands was a moment when the Lord did something to call him and to commission him for ministry. Now, that I think is far too rare in the church today. It only happens at major transition points. And I don't want to say that we should be doing this every week. In fact, this verse is telling us, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. Now, I've been preaching these messages through 1 Timothy because I believe that our church would be blessed if we consider a plurality of eldership. I think that's what the Bible teaches. I think it'll be helpful for our church. I think it'll be a blessing to our community. But this verse is a great caution that says, don't go too fast. I believe the Bible supports the idea that this laying on of hands is a commissioning for ministry. And I believe in the context of these verses in particular, he's talking about commissioning elders for ministry. Because he's just been talking about providing for them financially, rebuking them when they're in sin, and now he's saying, ideally, 
you should be cautious enough that you don't have to rebuke an elder for sin because hopefully you don't ever appoint someone that is likely to fall. Now he recognizes in a sinful world, it's going to happen. So they need to know how to deal with it. So they need to know what to do when it does happen. But if you are cautious and careful, I believe it will happen less. So if this verse is talking about appointing people to ministry, and I think it is, he gives a couple of careful cautions before we add to the number of elders. He says, you don't want to take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Now, I want to just for a second, this is totally hypothetical, but imagine for a moment that the church appoints someone who is a very gifted minister, understands the word well, communicates it well, he's funny, he's got clear illustrations. You walk out of church week after week and you feel like, man, I understood the Bible better. That was awesome. And yet, he's got a little bit of a temper. He's got some anger issues. And he explodes on people often enough, and then can't even recognize that what he did was wrong. And you can imagine the church would say, man, we're so blessed by his teaching of the word. I don't, maybe, maybe all those people are crazy, and it starts to add up. It's not just one or two or three or four people. This has happened again and again, and we recognize there's a pattern. And not only is there a pattern, it's not repented of, and it's never dealt with. When sin is not dealt with in the life of a pastor, the church is complicit in it. And it's horrible because what it implies is that Jesus is okay with it. Because we're supposed to be followers of Jesus, right? And if the church does nothing about public sin, it suggests that Jesus wouldn't do anything about it, which is not right. Jesus is very clear about how he deals with the churches that allow sin in their their midst. But that's why it's so serious. Because if we ignore sin in the life of a minister... We take part in it. So Paul warns them, be careful before you lay hands on somebody, before you commission someone for this type of ministry, you want to watch them carefully, which is why he says, verses 24 and 25, the sins of some people are conspicuous, so sometimes it's really obvious going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. In other words, you need to know someone long enough to have a sense of if they have tendencies to commit regular sin. And if they do, don't appoint them to ministry. And the flip side of that, he says, is also true. Sometimes a person's good works are very conspicuous, they're very obvious. And even those that are not very obvious cannot remain hidden forever. Jesus teaches us to be sneaky when we do good things, right? Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing when you give money. Don't don't pride yourself in your long public prayers that are just performance for other people and you're not really talking to God. Instead, he, he teaches us to privately pray and to secretly give. So, this actually leads us to not always knowing someone else's good deeds, which is a good thing. I can think of a couple people who have been so secretive that the church actually never realized that one individual was financing an entire ministry because he gave so conspicuously, or sorry, so inconspicuously that the church didn't know. But in time, good deeds also come out. And so if you are not hasty in the laying on of hands, the longer you know someone, They might slip up and you might figure out that they're doing good things. In the same way that you can eventually figure out someone's sins, you can also eventually figure out their generosity and their kindness. And you might begin to say, oh, so-and-so would be great in leadership. And ideally, that person would say, oh, I don't know about that. I'm not sure if that's true. Because you don't want someone who is eager for authority. That might lead them to be domineering, right? Instead, you want someone who is humble enough to say, man, I I am a sinner. Man, I don't know if I meet those qualifications. And the church rallies around him and says, you know, we love you and, and we appreciate that you're honest about your own sins, but we see a pattern of repentance and humility and we see examples of leadership and we believe the Lord is calling you to serve publicly 
to bless us as a shepherd. And when that happens, Paul doesn't say, don't ever lay hands on someone. He says, don't be hasty in laying hands on someone. So one of the things that I think we need to think carefully about is the fact that the the Bible doesn't talk about offices as being an annual election. It talks about ministry being something that God does in a person's life and the church then recognizes. So there's not like a temporary appointment where you're going to serve in leadership for this year and -and so-and-so is going to serve next year. No one should serve in leadership unless God has been at work in their lives first. It's not just taking turns. It's recognizing spiritual giftings and spiritual qualifications, and that ought to be something that the church itself recognizes. In the middle of this, there's a goofy verse that I skipped entirely. And this is the kind of verse that in a teetotaling environment, you trot out and say, man, this is my life verse right here. Verse 23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and for your frequent ailments. Here's why I think he says that here. Um, I know some of you have heard teachings like wine in, in ancient times is not like wine today. There's a kernel of truth to that, but people did still get drunk off of it. When they accused Jesus of being a drunkard, the accusation was possible because the wine he drank could make a person drunk. So I believe that when Paul says, drink a little wine for your stomach, he's saying drink a little wine for your stomach, not a little grape juice or something else. He really means wine. And the reason this matters here is I think with all of the cautions and warnings that Paul has given Timothy, there is a danger to become hyper-legalistic and so careful that you invent rules that God has not given. In fact, we know that Paul warns him about that at the beginning of chapter 4, where he says, you know, some people are saying you shouldn't even get married, like somehow marriage is a bad thing. He says, no, that instead... Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So as you evaluate elders, don't be legalistic in how you apply your standards of righteousness. Be biblical. Perhaps you have standards for yourself that are wise, but not necessarily for everyone. So perhaps you have rules to help you follow what the Lord teaches. So so perhaps... You have a history of alcoholism and you just know, I can't drink at all. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with a personal rule like that. There is something wrong with applying that rule to everyone else when the Lord hasn't done so. And so I believe in the middle of this caution, don't lay hands on people too hastily. He is telling Timothy, hey, as I urge you to publicly rebuke sins, as I urge you to test the character of other people, recognize You get sick a lot, and you should maybe go ahead and drink some wine instead of water to help with your frequent ailments. A lot of people think, I mean, ancient water could be very impure. A lot of people think there is a a legitimate medical reason for that at that time. Today, man, medical advice changes like every five minutes, right? In in the 80s, it was all about, you know, we're going to be super low fat, and we're going to eat all of these carbs and avoid all that that gross cholesterol. And, And now it's like, oh, fat is so good for you. Stay away from carbs, they'll kill you. So I'm, I'm not going to preach this as if this is medical advice, okay? Our wine is a little bit different. If you want medical advice, I would urge you talk to your doctor, do your own research. That's not my job. But I will say this. Let's be faithful in applying the word to our lives, even in places that are deeply personal, like what we eat and drink. Let's make sure that the standards we apply are actually biblical and not extra-biblical rules. Let's give grace to the people we consider for leadership, recognizing that all of us are sinners, even as we hold the standards up high. You're like, Pastor, you're saying two different things. Yes, I am. And here's why. Because the Bible is saying two complementary things, okay? The standards are high, and there is grace. If you have somebody who willfully violates the standard and doesn't repent, don't ever call them to ministry. If you have somebody that 
does violate the standard, but in humility repents, be gracious with that person and recognize the most important characteristic for leadership is regular repentance. So as we move forward, how do we apply this? What, what do we do? Well, First Baptist of Holly, I want to say, as we conduct our annual business meeting next week, let's look through the people who are running for office through the lens of First Timothy. Let's apply these standards to the lives of the people who have put their names on the ballot, not in a cruel, legalistic way, but in a way that says, are we qualified to lead? If the church decides that we're going to consider rewriting our constitution and perhaps we will appoint elders, the most obvious application of this message is we need to be prayerful and careful in how we call men to serve in godly servant leadership. And finally, I want to end in a way where we began. That the Lord loves his church. You know, we sang about mercy this morning. His mercy is more How our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. One of the ways that the Lord exercises mercy on a church is when he blesses them. And this is true of nations. I say this because this is true over and over again in all the Bible. When God has mercy on a people, he blesses them with good and godly leadership. When God has mercy on a people, he blesses them with good and godly leadership. When the people run from God in the Old Testament, it's so clear over and over and over again, the kings that are appointed throughout 1st and 2nd Kings, they are there as an, a divine act of judgment. When you read through prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah, and it describes the priests, and it describes the Levites, and how they had failed to lead over and over again. It describes how God is judging his people because of their unfaithfulness by giving them unfaithful leaders. And so whether it's a president or whether it's a pastor, I believe the same principle holds true. And I think one of the most important prayers we can pray as a church is, Lord, have mercy on us and bless us with good leaders. Paul's already said that we should be praying for kings and those in authority. Pray for our current president. Pray for our governor. But don't neglect to pray for your pastor and the pastors that will serve our church in the future. Lord, have mercy on us and bless us with humble servant leaders who have integrity. Lord, preserve us. Keep us from ever having to publicly rebuke a pastor. And Lord, give us the strength to do that if we need to. Let's be faithful to do exactly what the Lord has taught us here. And I want to invite you to pray with me. And I'd like to close in prayer. Father, I do pray that in your mercy, you would bless us with more and more leaders who love you, who are devoted to your word, who are faithful in preaching and teaching. I pray that we would have shepherds that care for the entire flock that no one would feel isolated or alone, that we would be able to give strength to those who are weak. And I pray that in your mercy, you would give us another generation of leaders to bless this church in Holly. I ask that you would help us to apply this faithfully in your grace. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was a payment, his life was the cause. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, the many, his mercy is more. Praise the Lord.
our sins they are many his mercy is more as I dismiss you I want to say if if you have a spiritual need if you just want to talk I'll be here for a little bit you can come up talk to me I'm not going to embarrass you or anything but I'd love to pray with you love to help you take the next steps with the Lord Um, we've got a a meeting for community fun night after the service so I'll, I'll be there in a couple of minutes um, I want to make sure that we plan well for this. And I want to dismiss you as a church with, with the blessings of the Lord. Grace is God giving us what no one deserves. And we want to rest in the grace of God as we trust him for leaders, and as we trust him for the coming year. So I want to dismiss you. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. Go in peace.